0: Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student run, student focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani.
1: And I'm Will. And today we're thrilled to have Amal Kassir with us. Amal Kassir is a Syrian American spoken word poet and artist born in Denver, Colorado. In college, which was only a couple of years ago, she created her own undergraduate degree called Community Programming in Social Psychology. She's conducted workshops, given lectures, and recited her poetry in 10 countries and over 45 cities, in venues ranging from youth prisons, to orphanages, to refugee camps, to churches, to the TED stage, to PBS NewsHour. She runs a project called More Than Metaphors that focuses on the education initiative for displaced Syrian children, and she's also a server at her family's Syrian restaurant, Damascus Grill in Denver.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Quite an accomplished resume right there. <laughs> it looks uh,
2: fancy on paper, don't worry.
0: <laughs> fancy in real life as well. Um, <laughs> we like to begin each of our interview with our guests by asking about the concept of inflection points or, or pivots um, and changes in their be it personal or professional life that really led them to where they are right now. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, if you could share a few uh, with our listeners today.
2: Yeah, I think a good place to start would be Where I started, essentially, 13 years old, uh, there was a protest on two sides of the street, people very opposing of each other. And, uh, you know, I had my face painted. I was a little 13-year-old girl (laughs) who, you know, was pumped all about human rights. And it was the first time I hit the television. And I remember going home that night and watching the TV and being so shocked that the news lied about something, completely, completely misconstrued the numbers, so much so that a 13-year-old girl could notice. Wow. And I, I was I was blown away. You know, in my mind, I knew about injustice. I knew about poverty. Um, I was very privileged, thankfully. And so my parents made it a point to teach me about what the opposite of that might look like and what even more of that might look like. And so that night, I, I, I couldn't believe that those in power would misconstrue something and so this poem called leaders of the world fell out of my mouth (laughs) now at the time I didn't know it was a poem I didn't know what it was it was an anti-teenager speech and my plan was to actually perform that on the United Nations stage and you know shooting for the stars (laughs) But it's
0: a good dream to have. As a
2: <laughs> Definitely. Um, now that I look back, the poem, it's not the best, but <laughs> for two years, I memorized this piece every single day when I was in the shower, when I was walking to and from school. I, I had it on the tip of my tongue. For me, it was called a speech. But sophomore year of high school, there was a sign for slam poetry coming into my school. And I googled what that was. And I was like, oh, my God, that that's what that thing I wrote is. And it was the first time that I was able to use something that I had sort of in my arsenal to actually get up on a stage. I knew I belonged on a stage from a very young age. I knew it. Um, I had big things to say and I I was always ready to say them. And so this was the opportunity for me to do it. And uh, it was a miracle. The first year I got third place Second year, I got first place, which led me to qualify for the team, which led us to national or internationals. And we won first place. Wow. And it was uh, the last round was a poem about Syria by me and my fellow poet, Ashlyn Damers. And um, I, I, I never knew that, that that my voice could ever really go anywhere. You know, at least not like that. Mm-hmm. i had already given up on the UN dream at this point. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, maybe this isn't going to happen. But it ended up kind of going a little viral. And and then at my first event after that was in front of the White House. for uh, It was called Under the Banner, World Silence is Killing Syria. And I spoke a letter to the dictator of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, on that stage in front of the White House as this like 17 year old girl, and um, since then it's it's been. I mean, it's hard to 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 pick the mm-hmm. few events. I mean, every time something tragic happens in Syria, it feels like this sort of revitalized version of myself comes out to sort of step up on the mic. Um, but as far as as another pivotal point in my I would say it would be two weeks before I graduated, uh, December 2016. I call it the meltdown. Mm. And uh, you, you listed my resume. Um, it sounds fancy on paper for sure. But there came a point where I had absolutely no faith in anything I'd done. It was just a piece of paper. It was just a bunch of stuff that I, I did. And it meant nothing to me, you know, and I felt very, very isolated um, and I ended up going to Lookout Mountain in Colorado and looking at my city for the first time, really looking at it. And I started writing. And it was this transformational experience because it was the first time that I ever really felt like a writer. And the difference between this time and all the other times I've written was I wasn't trying to create something. I was trying to find something because I... Everything that has happened in the past few years with Syria, with uh, the, the, the immigration bans mm-hmm. and, and with the deaths and everything that we've had to deal with, what I was doing before, writing these defiant pieces and going up on stage with people clapping for me, it wasn't enough. It wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't going to be what would change the world for me. So when I went on that mountain and started writing, I, I discovered the ability to search for the wisdom on the grassroots and i think that's changed my life because i it's it's really it's really humbled me you know and and it's made me a lot more cautious to be so big <laughs> in my beliefs and to really be realistic about things because right now the world is a mess and we're not going to clean it up by throwing more gunk in it We're not, you know you can't fight fire with fire that's for mm-hmm. sure um and so those are the beginning and and that that changing point are really what, how I am here right now
0: so absolutely that's my blabber <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: you mentioned as one of your inflection points the poetry that you read in front of the White House that was structured as an open letter to Bashar al-Assad. And in that uh, recitation, you compared Bashar al-Assad to Hitler, Gaddafi, and Mussolini. Uh, All three of them are tyrants who lost power in part as a result of American interventions. Mm -hmm. You've also said that uh, Syria in other poetry is undetected, like the Rwandan genocide. Uh, And recently, Colorado Public News reported that uh, U.S. missile strikes in Syria last week, quote, gave you some hope. Uh, Do you think that the United States has a role to play in stabilizing the situation in Syria and bringing peace? Or do you think that fighting fire with fire, as you just said, is never going to make anything better?
2: I'll admit um, the uh, Colorado Public Radio title brings hope. Um, That was a little too optimistic. Okay. And the reason I say that is because, number one, you have President Trump who has banned Syrian refugees and tried to over and over again from coming to the United States. So any initiative to use the military force, it it, it isn't for the sake of the people, Mm. right? Because then the chemical attack in 2013, we would have intervened in that. And the chemical attack that happened a a couple weeks ago, we would have intervened in that politics is exhausting the United States responsibility and I'm talking not about the leaders so much as I am the people our responsibility is to take care of the refugees and help the humanitarian situation that's that's someone who's lost hope that that's my solution someone who has absolutely no faith in the because come on it's What are we, in our seventh year almost? 2011, we're 2018 now. First year, yes. Second year, yes. We need to do more. We need to, you know, let Bashar al-Assad know who's boss. Third year, yes. Fourth year, there's already a million people dead. Fifth year, how many detainees are there? Sixth year, my family gets bombed. We lose 11 members. Seventh year, like, we're, we're, they are making us hopeless. And we do not trust these people in power to do what's right. And so what they need to focus on is the humanitarian initiative. If we will allow Russia and Bashar al-Assad to massacre these people with their barrel bombs and their scud missiles and and airstrikes on a day-to-day basis, then the least we can do is, if not open up our borders for the refugees, at least supply them with food or something. And again, this is coming from the perspective of someone who's lost hope in the leadership after so many years. I was 14 years old in French class when the war started really? in Syria wow. and I remember, I swear, I looked at my phone in French class, <laughs> probably not allowed, and I said, how much you want to bet if they don't intervene, something like Al Qaeda is going to show up. Here we are. Right. ISIS is what made Syria famous. It wasn't the kid that washed up on the shores of Turkey. It wasn't the chemical attack that killed over a 1,000 people in just a couple hours. It was ISIS. And according to Russia, that war is over, but Russia keeps bombing. And Assad keeps bombing. And we, we comment on it once in a while when it becomes some sort of Twitter storm or something. But I say this often, and I, I try to make it true, but my politics is human rights. We have to protect that. Forget, forget the big business bosses. Forget those dudes who are shaking hands with others in their presidential palaces. No. My politics is making sure everyone is fed. Everyone has a blanket and somewhere to sleep. Even if it's a refugee tent with mud on the floor. Just somewhere. These kids have to learn. They have to learn. We need to give them schools. If, if we got the food thing taken care of. Mm-hmm. The United States can do plenty because we are one of the most advanced nations in, in the world, you know?
0: Absolutely. Um, to use your own words at this Twitter storm, which is, you know, it's, it's crass to talk about issues like Syria, ones that have devastating consequences on your own family, um, which so many apologies for that, but also millions of people. But if you don't have the headlines, it, it seems in terms of issues or. Or global issues, it's it's really hard to incite outrage yeah. and, and incite action. Um, and so, beyond your own shared experiences and personal experiences with the issue, how do you get folks who don't share the same outrage, who don't read the headlines, read the numbers, read read the statistics, and and feel something? to take action, and to take productive action, I, I should qualify. Yeah. Um, because although we we like to dismiss the, the men who are shaking hands, it's really power structures. Yeah. Um, and how do we get folks who are my age, uh, and college students, all the way up to the top to really decide that this is the time to act?
2: Right. Um, well, first, there is a saying by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and he says that if you see and injustice, change it with your hands. If you cannot change it with your hands, change it with your tongue. If you cannot change it with your tongue, then change it with your heart. That last piece, that's the least we can do to fundamentally reject oppression. Now, there are campaigns like Books Not Bombs ran mm-hmm. by my friend, Shiam Galleon, and she's wonderful. They're, they're doing things like Funding scholarships for Syrian refugees to make sure that they can continue their education. I mean, the first place that the Assad regime started bombing were universities mm-hmm. and schools. That's very tactical.
0: That seems to be you know? what it always is yeah. when, when a regime's taking over. Displaces people like right. us, the
2: intellectuals, the the free thinkers, the ones who actually can have a solution, even if there are bombs outside. Um, Syrian American Council, there are plenty of organizations that are building schools in refugee camps, even inside Syria, in places that are safer than all the others that are that are protected and ensuring that kids are getting at least a minimal education, you know, and there are so many humanitarian initiatives that we should be a part of. If we are too afraid to get political about it, then go donate to a school. Kerem Foundation, New Day Syria, there are so many places you can just Google it. As far as the the average Joe who doesn't possess the the, the power, I guess, to or even I don't want to say courage, but but who doesn't have the confidence to go call their senator or, or the congressman. That's where I like to step in and tell a story.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, as you know, in April last year, um, a bomb struck my family's home, killing 11 people. The next day I went to the Kennedy Center and I could have stayed home. I could have mourned with my family. But my dad said, no, you're going to go and you're going to tell the story. And people reacted more emotionally than I did. And the video on on Facebook, it got 12 million views. Mm. That's that for that was not something that I thought could even happen. But for some reason, people were reading it and feeling it. And, and we got calls. We got thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars donations from across the United States, from, from regular non-Muslim, non-Syrian people who just wanted to help. And this went to the fund to rebuild the family's building. We haven't started that initiative yet since they're still under a, an air siege. Mm. But this proves that sometimes having your heart broken... Will will push you to that activism, hurting, crying, rejecting it with your heart. That is a type of activism, and we make sure to tell every person we know about the horrors. and I'll do Syria, and you know the young Burmese woman, she can talk about the Rohingya Muslims, and and the woman in Mexico, she can talk about about you know what ICE is doing. And we we all have our story to tell, and we all have a a community that we're passionate about that needs a little bit of justice. And I think that's where it begins, storytelling. I call myself a storytelling activist, if anything, because it's the least I can do. And usually people will move on their own the second their hearts break.
1: To turn from the importance of donations to causes abroad to causes that are important to us in the United States, you've praised... uh suggested donation-based models as a way to keep arts and education venues going, and you've said that it's something you cherished about your own upbringing in Denver, Colorado. Definitely. Do you think that that's a sustainable model and one that more venues should follow in the United States to keep practices like spoken word poetry or any other kind of artistic expression supported?
2: Absolutely, and it's it's very clear right now that spoken word poetry is catching on. Absolutely. I have performed in venues that I did not belong in based on the scarf on my head, you know, and the, the power of art. So I, I tend to follow what is called the meaning making framework. Um, and it is I can't remember the woman who constructed it, but the capacity to remove something traumatizing from within yourself onto a piece of paper is almost like the physical act of removing poison from yourself. And now that it's in front of you, you have the capacity to shape it. I was in Trinidad and Tobago, which is the bottom island of the the Caribbean. And we had a poetry workshop with Malcolm London, who's based in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and a few other poets. And one girl, she wouldn't read out loud, right? But at the very end, she came up to me and she handed me a piece of paper very defiantly she was very proud and it was her admitting for the first time that her uncle had been raping her since she was a little girl
0: oh my god
2: very heavy stuff this girl couldn't have been older than 12 or 13 years old the fact that this girl showed this to me defiantly and yanked that paper right out of my hand and and ran off that is a revolution for this young person through writing something that she was completely alone in, she now has the ability for her to shape it rather than for it to shape her. And, and you could see the success. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. We, we know that writing workshops have proven very successful. Because one, you're, you're using your intellect. Writing, is, it, it, it requires, it's a craft, you know? And I believe, I mean, the visual arts, music, all of these things are very, very important but i prioritize literacy and writing above anything else because if you are illiterate there is no place for you in this world there is no place that you can be seen really and to be able to write you can comprehend things you can untangle things you can liberate your mind from things and i know this personally having my own misconstrued views through writing you can you can work things out i believe that we need to stand by the all of the initiatives that entail using young voices to get stories out there because it's it's, I'm not doing something on behalf of people I don't I write about Syria but that's because I was there for a little bit and and I had a little bit experience that's why people know me not because I'm some random person who's writing on a specific topic who got the, the the microphone handed to her. Not at all. Through our sincerity and through our identities, we can stand up and get our voices out there. I've seen it. I've seen kids who've been bullied stand up on a microphone and read a poem about it. That's a big deal. And poetry is spoken word specifically. I don't want to say poetry. Like, we're not talking about Shakespeare here, <laughs> you know. Um, it's being demanded language. <laughs> it's being demanded and um, I believe that in the United States we need to preserve programs that enable young kids not just minorities not just people of color but every single child to be able to actually recognize what's inside of them because we get disattached from that a lot you know I had one student, oh my gosh, he was like eight years old. He was a little white boy. And he started crying in the middle of a writing workshop because um, his father just had to leave to Germany again because he was in the military. He had the whole classroom of like little kids crying for each other and hugging each other. And that for that young man, that's impactful because he's able to recognize something and he's able to recognize an empathy that comes with it. Because you also have a little Latina boy, Latino boy. And then you have like a little girl who says her mother's a crack whore. And like you've got these big topics in these little children's minds. And they're learning empathy. And they're getting smarter by learning each other. And this is on a small scale. You know, I I do what I do. um, And, you know, I'm trying to get in graduate school right now. So I'm not working on a national level um, to implement these programs. But I support everyone out there. And I think we have to.
1: What's your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves?
2: Success is sincerity. If you can fail and be sincere in your failure, you, are, you have been successful. If you do something for a right cause and you don't get washed up in, in, in the glory that comes with it, you are successful. If you reached a goal on your sticky note (laughs) to-do list on your mirror, with sincerity, you are successful. I think we often try to define it through some sort of materialistic or tangible means. But the reality is, as I said before, I had a resume and I felt like a failure and had nothing going for me when I ran away to the mountains. There was no success in anything I'd done, even though someone else might define it as such but as soon as i humbled myself down to sincerity knowing what i wanted to do and knowing why i was doing it i think that's what made me feel a lot more successful and 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 sincerity is something you have to recheck all the time sincerity is you need to make sure you know what your intention is you have to even if you have to repeat it a thousand times over and over again because it's easy to get lost our hearts have diseases and you could be on top of the world and have all the, the money and the friends and the lifestyle to to vouch for your success. But if you don't have the sincerity in what you are doing, it, it means nothing. Because then when you're alone, what will you have to testify for all that you have done? Um, I know that's a lot more deep and emotional, <laughs> I'm sure, than, than oftentimes, but I feel most successful when I have been sincere, even if it's a conversation at the grocery store with someone. Um, and so I hope that I can always stay as such, and I hope everyone can find value in, in that.
0: Absolutely. I've, and I think that's students my age, that that's something that we don't often hear, uh, but need to. So thank you so much for that. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much again for joining us. And mm. to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.